at the book of Genesis, and we are ready for chapter 4 this morning. And as you turn there and find your way there, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had anything in your life that began with a great deal of hope and promise, Uh, something in which you were initially very excited and thrilled that this was happening and then just watched it turn to ashes and be destroyed? Maybe it was with your career. Uh, Maybe ever since you were a kid, you had dreamed and fantasized and sweated and trained and prepared for a particular career, only to find that you weren't skilled enough or weren't good-looking enough or talented enough or rich enough or whatever enough to rise to the highest levels that you had imagined. Or maybe you were able to start a business and it went great for a while and then you went bankrupt and left with your your debts and what was left of your dreams. Maybe you had a marriage. Every marriage is great. Every wedding day is awesome, you know. There's no unhappy couples who stand before their pastor and get married, right? But it's after that. You know, we've, I've shared many times from the pulpit here how my wife and I had our first fight in the parking lot leaving the reception <laughs> at our wedding, right? Um, you can get awfully disappointed if you choose to in your marriage. Or maybe one of your kids was raised to know God, to walk in holiness before Him, to know His Word, to be faithful in ministry, be part of the church family. And now, when they speak of their Christian faith, it is a joke or a memory, but not a life. We all know those kinds of disappointments, don't we? Things that we that started out so promising, with so much hope, so much joy, that just turned to bitterness and disappointment. Why? Three little letters. S I N. Sin. Sin destroys everything that it touches. And it is going to touch, we're going to see in Genesis chapter 4, the first family of humanity in a very real way. Uh, If you got your Bible, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, down through verse 16, we'll read together. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. 
And so Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, as you look at this text, uh, look at these first couple of verses. Just, let's just remember back previous week in chapter 3. What we saw there is that uh, after God had cursed Adam and his wife, he also clothed them with animal skins. And we pointed out last week that, that was very significant because God was teaching his people that it's only through blood It's only through the death that sin can be paid. And he clothed them, not with fig leaves that will grow back, but with the skin of an animal who had to die to cover their shame. And so he taught them about sacrifice and how you had to offer sacrifice to come into relationship with God. And Adam and Eve believed God's promise. They believed that the promise of the seed of the woman was going to be fulfilled and that this person was going to be born. And so in the course of time, Adam and Eve get together and she becomes pregnant and she brings forth a boy and she's excited. She says, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Remember what? God told them that, you're, that the woman is going to bear a child and the child will conquer serpent and Satan and sin. I have to believe she's thinking, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the boy who will conquer sin. It's not to be. Because in the course of time, Adam and, Eve, uh, Adam and Eve's boys grow up. Cain grows up to be a farmer, a tiller of the soil. By the sweat of his brow, he brings forth his food as a man under the curse. And Abel, the other son, grows up to be a herdsman. He keeps flocks. And 
because they have been taught about sacrifice by their parents, they bring sacrifice. And we're not exactly sure why Abel's sacrifice is rendered acceptable to God and why Cain's is not. Because under the Old Testament law, you were allowed as part of your worship of God to bring sacrifice of the produce of the land to the house of the Lord and and to have that be an acceptable sacrifice. But I do think we get a hint. I think that it's in the way that the sacrifice is offered. If you look at the text really closely, what you see is this. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the produce. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of the flock. I don't think, although I was taught this growing up in Sunday school, that it is because Abel brought blood sacrifice and Cain brought grain. I don't think that's the issue. I think what the issue is, is the attitude behind the act. You see, Abel brought the best of what he had available. He brought the fat of the firstborn, the very best of the animals that he had. And Cain brought some stuff. And God is not pleased with an attitude that says, well, this is good enough for Jesus. Here you go. And so he does not accept Cain's offering. He does not accept Cain's offering, and Cain is mad about it. And, he, and, and God speaks to him directly and says, Cain, why are you upset? And he uses language very, very similar. If you go back to chapter 3, it's interesting. It's very, very similar language to, to when God speaks to the woman. He uses very similar words. When God spoke to the woman, he said to her, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Now he picks that the same two words, desire and rule, and uses them with Cain with reference to sin. And he says, Cain, sin's desire is for you. And it's a picturesque image in Hebrew of like an animal that's crouched outside waiting on you to get there, to jump on you and eat you. And he says, its desire is for you, but you are going to have to conquer over it. You're going to have to dominate sin and get control of it. Is that what Cain does? No. In fact, rather than repent, which is why God is bringing this up. Is God bringing this up just so he can say, no, 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 you didn't do the right thing? No. He wants Cain to repent. Cain doesn't repent. He allows himself to be mastered by sin He becomes hardened even further. And what does he do? Oh, so goody two-shoes brother, his offering got accepted. Mine from the field was not. Abel, why don't we go out to the field? 
And while he's there, Cain rises up and kills his brother. Now, you who are parents, let me ask you, would there be anything worse than to have one of your children kill one of the others? can't imagine what that would be like. Because in a sense, you have lost two children in the same day, one who has been killed and one who is alienated from you in a way that's not really ever repairable. And it's terrible. And we need to feel the shock of it because it is shocking. You know, we hear about a murder about every other day down in Peoria or up in Chicago or some other place. And murder has just become kind of a commonplace thing. We watch cop shows about murderers getting caught and all this kind of thing, and we just don't even think about it. But I'll assure you that if it happens in your family, that it doesn't, it's not just something that just happens. It's a tragedy. And it's awful. And it happens in with the boy that you thought maybe this is the boy whom God promised. And he's not. He kills the other one. And God shows up again, very much similar to what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. And he says, Cain... Where is your brother Abel? And rather than accept even any level of responsibility, as Adam and Eve did, remember Adam and Eve did a little shuffle, you know, well, the serpent, she, you know, and then he, and then Adam says, well, the woman that you gave me, and so God and the woman are both being blamed a little bit, and then, but Adam does eventually take some responsibility even though he's still being kind of lame, he does take some responsibility. What does Cain do? Am I my brother's keeper? No responsibility. And so God confronts him. What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out from the ground. And in the curse on Cain, God is very just. because. Cain was a worker of the ground who used the ground to cover up his sin and slew his brother in the fields that he worked. God says, fine. You like the field so much? You're never going to be able to grow food from the field again. It's not going to yield its produce for you anymore. Because you used the ground that I gave you to produce food to swallow up your brother's blood. He says, you'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain complains. He whines. Oh, my punishment is too severe for me. And God is gracious. He ought to take his life. 
but he doesn't do that. Instead, he allows Cain to live, and he puts a mark on him so that if he ever has any other brothers who want to enact justice on him, that he won't be executed. And he goes out to a place called the Land of Nod. It's not the land where you take a nap. Um, It's the land of wandering, (laughs) okay? (laughs) The land of wandering. He's out just to the east of Eden somewhere, wandering around. But he's not content to be a wanderer forever. The text goes on. It says that he lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. And to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. And Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. And Ada gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and the flute. And Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Naama. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me and a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Cain has decided that curse or no curse, he's not going to be a restless wanderer anymore. He's going to build himself a city. And you get in Scripture, there are two kinds of cities that are mentioned. The city of God, represented on earth by the city of Zion. And then the new Jerusalem will come down, you know, a heavenly city, right, at the end of all things. But there's also a city which is built in rebellion against God. And Cain's is the first instance of that. I'm not sure that I really trust God's promise to protect me, so I'm going to build myself a place where I can be protected. And he builds himself a spot, a city probably with walls around it, although those aren't mentioned in the text. And he has a wife. Now, let me just go ahead and answer this question, okay? Where did Cain and Abel's wives and all that come from, okay? It's his sister. Don't be scandalized. It's his sister. When the gene pool in a species is very dense, You can do that and not have genetic or other issues, all right? Um, It's when you get the gene pool shallow that you have problems, okay? So for as as an example, all of the members of a wolf pack are brothers and sisters and mom and dad and interrelated, okay? Uh, If you do that out of the same litter of let's say, beagle puppies, you're going to get all kind of problems, all right? Um, in fact, even scientists will tell you through mito- what's called mitochondrial DNA studies that all people come from one woman, okay? You can look it up. It's out there. Science proves what the Bible says is true. All people come from one 
human woman. Go back far enough, all right? Um, Here's the deal. He has not just a woman that he has married, but a woman presumably like him that he has married. And so you're starting to get a division within the human race between those who are going to try to follow God and those who are going to rebel against him. And Cain is starting to establish himself a civilization that is devoted to rebelling against and refusing to live within God's standards. And it starts to be a fairly advanced civilization. They, they start to have children, and then within seven generations, they've got, uh, they've got this fellow Lamech, and Lamech has two wives. Now, is that God's plan? Remember? Genesis chapter 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his what? Wife. Singular wife. Be joined to his wife, and they will become one flesh. It doesn't say anything in Scripture anywhere about be joined to his wives. Plural. Okay? It ain't in there. Okay? Some of you guys might want to double check on that, but it isn't in there. You'll look a long time. All right? And every time that a man does this in Scripture, it is a disaster. Check it out. You know, some people think, oh, well, you know, Abraham had multiple wives. Yeah, that worked out well, didn't it? Okay? Yeah, that hasn't led to any problems. Uh, yeah, Jacob had multiple wives. Oh, wait till we see what a train wreck that turned into. Okay, David had multiple wives. Oh, and that wasn't a problem at all. <laughs> Solomon did it. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay, don't get me started on Solomon, right? Every time this happens, this is a disaster. Why? Because you can't deviate that far from the blueprint and still wind up with the building plum and square. <laughs> okay, it doesn't work. And he, na- he marries two women, and their names mean, in Hebrew, ornament and tinkling. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not a joke. That's their names, okay? What kind of gals are these? Okay? That's exactly right, okay? We, we have the first trophy wives, and he's got two of them. Okay, these are gals that look good in the car, but that's about all they got going for them. All right. And they start to have children and their children uh, are contrary to what's coming in from mom, apparently fairly sophisticated people. You get metalworking, you get herding and advances in agriculture, you get music By the way, is it possible for a society to be rapidly advancing in technology and to be morally abhorrent before God? Is that possible? Yes. Is that still possible? Yes. Okay. Can I get a witness on this? All right. (laughs) Amen. Okay. This is what is happening. 
The entire direction of society culturally is progressing upward. But the entire direction of society morally and spiritually is down. Because this fellow, Lamech, has walked in the footsteps of his great-great-great-great-grandfather Cain. And only he's not just a murderer, he's proud of the fact. Look at what he says. I have killed a man for wounding me and a young man for injuring me. In other words, you insult me, you try to take me on, I'll whack you down. And rather than be ashamed of it like Cain was, Remember, am I my brother's keeper? I don't know what happened to Abel. Not me, babe. I I don't know what's up. Now he brags to his wives about what a vicious son of a gun he is. And he says, hey, if Cain should get avenged seven times, then look at me. I'm ten times as bad as that. Seventy-seven times. By the way, Jesus turns this on his head. Turns it completely upside down in the New Testament. You remember what he says? How many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? No. Seventy-seven times. Why? Where did he get that? Genesis chapter 4. Okay. This is a mess. You've got a whole civilization of people devoted to disobeying God while they pursue their own advancement and technological sophistication and glory. Can that still happen? Yes. Is that happening? Amen. Yes, it is. Okay? But, the end of the chapter, you get, you get grace notes in this symphony of destruction. Okay? Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Seth is the child that God granted to replace Abel, and he is the child of hope. With the birth of every one of Adam and Eve's sons, there's this thought, maybe this one. Maybe this one. One of them winds up dead. One of them winds up a murderer. And now we have a third one. Maybe this one. Maybe this will be the boy who will crush the serpent, reverse the curse, and restore us to relationship with God. And that doesn't happen. Not yet. They don't know that that civilization is going to grind on for endless ages until the seed of the woman promise is fulfilled. But there's hope. Anyone remember what, what Cain's firstborn son's name is? His name is Enoch. And Seth also grows up and he has a firstborn son and he names him Enosh. Very similar sounding, looking names. In the case of Cain, Cain's son Enoch, his name means dedicated. And it's the same as the name of the city that he 
dedicates to his son. We're going to have a civilization that is dedicated to rebelling against God. Then you've got Enosh. His name means mortal. It's a recognition of the fact that man is mortal, that we do not have life as it should be, but that in relationship with God, we can be restored, but we're still mortal. We're not going to live forever. And no matter what you dedicate your life to, it's still going to come to an end. And so you better be right with God. And the text says that at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. You can also translate that phrase another way, I found out. It can also read this way. At that time, men began to be called by the name of the Lord. And I'm not sure which way is right. I know how it reads in in English in my Bible. But one way or the other, it either means that men began to recognize, as Seth did in the naming of his son, that this life is not forever, and we nobody we know has died yet except for Abel who was murdered, but life on this earth is not going to last forever, and we better get right in our relationship with God. And so they began to call out to God. Or it says that they began to be called by the name of the Lord. Anybody else known anybody who was called by the name of the Lord? Lately? I mean... Yeah, we have a a building full of them, right? Christians, little Christs, right? People who are called by the name of the Lord. And you begin to get a group. You have this group over here and the son and Seth and his sons who are dedicated to following God. And you have Cain and his sons, and they are dedicated to exalting themselves and protecting themselves from everybody else. And you get to this division in humanity. In a few short weeks here, we have gone from it was very good. God looked down on all that he had made, and it was very good to the fall, to the curse, to expulsion from the garden, to the first murder, to the first polygamist, to the first city built by proud, bragging, unrepentant sinners. And human history is circling the drain. It is going down and down and down and down and worse and worse and worse. But there are these little notes of hope that God has not given up yet on his people. That he has not yet given up on humanity. And even though sin has come in and it is destroying everything, it's destroying families, destroying creation, destroying relationships, men and women, destroying relationships, brothers and brothers, destroying everything that God had made to be beautiful and harmonious. Yet God is still at work. Let me just ask a few questions here as we close. Make a few points of application. Number one, whose name are you called by. Cain named his people and his city after his son. 
And Seth and his descendants named themselves after the Lord. Every day we have a choice. Every day. Whose name we're going to appropriate. Are our lives going to bring honor and glory and service and demonstrate love to the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are they going to bring honor to us and to ourselves and to our family and to our descendants? Who are we going to glorify? Who are we going to seek the good of and the honor of, ourselves or our Lord Jesus? What do you want to have on your tombstone when it is written that here lies the Reverend Dr. So-and-so, blah, 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 okay, in my case, or here lies the servant of the Lord? Exalt yourself or exalt the Lord. You're going to do one or the other. As Jesus said, a man cannot serve two masters. Either love the one and hate the other or hate this one and love that one, but you don't get two. You either get yourself and sin and Satan and death or Jesus and self-sacrifice and purity, and eternal life. What is the choice every day? Whose name are you going to be called by today, tomorrow, this week, this month, this year, this life? Whose name will you bear? Second thing I want you to see out of this text is that God always preserves, always preserves, a remnant of righteous people, so that the world is not without hope. These days, it's very easy to get discouraged. It's very easy to get discouraged. I can give you statistics that will drive you to drink about the state of our country, about the state of our community. You can tell me stories about your family that will drive me either to prayer or to alcohol, one or the other. A lot of you are in pain, and you're discouraged, and you're beat down. But here's the reality. The reality is, is that God is still at work. He still preserves a remnant in every place at every time who know Him, who know His Word, who are trusting His promises, so that the world is not without hope, ever. Even in the bleakest, darkest, toughest places, God is there. He is present with His people. It's winter. The world is erupting again. There's rioting all over the Middle East. Who knows where that leads? Probably to something worse. But God is moving. And He has a preserved a remnant all over the world whose knee has not bowed to Baal and whose lips have not kissed Him and who will not bow 
before any other God but the true Lord Jesus Christ. And so we don't need to give up hope. We can be like the people of, who are descended from Seth who know that God is going to preserve his people, that he is going to not leave the world bereft of some kind of a witness for him. That though all of the direction of civilization may be advancing greatly in an anti-God way, that God is still saving and loving and choosing and calling people who are going to call on him. Whether it's Tajikistan or Chillicothe, Illinois, God is still at work. We're going to get two foot of snow this week, and it's going to be gray, and it's going to be cold, and it's going to last you the rest of your life is how it's going to feel, okay? But God is still at work, okay? I feel like I'm living that scene out of Groundhog Day, you know, where every day you get up and it's the same day. <laughs> More snow, you know what I mean? Oh, boy. Yeah, is it still cold? Yep, still cold, Okay. Is the world still a mess? Yes. Are we still in Illinois in debt up to our grandchildren's eyeballs? Yes, we are. Okay. But you know what? None of that matters because God is still at work. And he is still saving. And he is still loving. And he is still rescuing his people who call on his name. Last thing, God is still gracious. And he still forgives even very, very serious sin if we will call out to him. Uh, When I share the gospel with people, I know when they're starting to get it about the grace of God who loves sinners. When they say to me, wait a minute, do you mean that I can be a raping, murdering, drug-addicted rebel against God and he will still save me if I repent? Yes. That's exactly what I mean. In fact, you can create a nastier list than that if you want, and guess what? God will still, if you repent and trust in the blood of his Son shed on your behalf, save you, regenerate you, make you a member of his own family, and give you a home in glory. God wanted to do that with Cain but he would not repent. He came to him and said, what have you done? In other words, genius, this is your opportunity to repent right now. Before that, he came to him and said, you offered the wrong sacrifice in the wrong way. What about it, boy? God is giving him an opportunity to repent. God judged him with the idea that somehow his judgment would lead to a a moment of clarity where a light bulb would go on over his head and he would go, I'm screwed up. I'm shut out from the presence of God. This is a problem I need to fix, not a situation I need to adapt to. God still loves, still forgives, and if you repent, will still forgive you no matter what you've done. I don't know who I'm speaking to right now. I don't have anybody in mind in particular. But as I was in my study this week, writing this message, 
I was struck by the idea that God still loves sinners and He still calls us to repent. And if you are carrying around some big old bag of guilties from all this stuff that you've done and you think to yourself, it is too far back. I can't get there from where I am. God doesn't love me that much. He won't forgive me of all of this sack full of stuff. I'm here to tell you that he will. But you've got to leave your stuff with him. You've got to be willing to say, God, here's my stuff in all of its nastiness. Help me to change. Help me to leave it with you. Forgive me for what I've done. And just that quickly, the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. You need to repent. Repent. Because you're mortal. This life is not going to last forever. You're in sin. Repent and be restored to God. Let's pray.